Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 47. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is video producer, critic, and YouTube vaudevillian Harry Brewis, also known as H-Bomber Guy. Oh, wow, that's a cool intro. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Your channel didn't start off with you doing what you're doing now, so I guess, what is your origin story? Okay, my origin story is... Okay, hold on. Let me let me open my channel and see what my origin story is. I'm not really certain what it is anymore. Rejected Swanee University commercial? Is that the earliest thing you can see? Oh, my goodness. My friend, the mistakes I can see as the on the creator of the channel. No, the, the thing I started out doing mostly was Let's Plays. This was prior to the days of YouTube, though, so none of them were ever on that channel. Sort of, I suppose, things like Hitman... Call of Cthulhu, Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl, like I did stuff for the Something Awful forums, Let's Play, the forum. And I wasn't particularly well known, but me and a couple people sort of worked together doing that for a while. And then, like, I never got many views on it. I wasn't one of the popular cool kids on the Let's Play sub forum. But uh, I hung out there and I sort of cut my teeth learning to edit video and talk about games to a certain degree there. And also I sort of learned to be very pretentious about films on those forums, so I owe that to them. And then, for a while, I made other weird stuff. I made parodies of video blogs, which are now all unlisted or private, which were the things that went semi-viral by my standards. I remember, like, the second one got 7,000 views, and I thought, oh, my God, this is it. Uh, This was, like, six years ago now. And then I... Let's scroll down a bit. Yeah, and then I just started putting up weird stuff I made uh, when I was in college. Uh, I think there's still a video up of me burning a bill I was supposed to pay on a stove. Yeah, like, that's... So... I just started messing about, and then eventually I graduated and made videos about sort of certain corners of the internet, which had tried to co-opt video games into this sort of bizarre political ideology. And before I knew it, I was also talking about games and the things that I liked about them. Uh, And so I guess here I am now sort of making content that alternates or oscillates between those two things. You know, So uh, sort of on my schedule, there's... You know, I'm going to talk about this particular issue and how these people react to it, and also then I'm going to talk about a video game. So, the, like, the next two ones are about games, so hopefully that reminds people that I do that. Yeah, yeah. the first thing of yours that I ever saw was the, your measured response of the Sarkeesian effect. Yeah, that that's the one that, like, overnight lots of people saw that, and it's always been kind of kind of amusing. A lot of people shared that. I think it got really big on Tumblr, I think is what happened. I think a Tumblr user called Dragon Dicks saw it, and they have inexplicably have a lot of followers and shared that, and just tons of people saw it through there. Um, so I have a couple of friends who, like, shared it first, and one of them further down the chain, for some reason that person follows them. So I kind of know who's responsible for me being known on the internet, and that's kind of cool. I kind of owe them one. Um, but... uh a definite sort of issue or fear I had with my channel was how am I going to get people to, like, stick with me as a creator when I make these very different kinds of things? Like, how do I can how do I cultivate an audience that's willing to stick through me with that, or stick through that with me, rather? And the answer is just to do both and let people decide for themselves, because I think if I'd done them all very separately, I would have spread myself too thin, so I just do what I think is worth making and hope people support me as a creator rather than as a as as a as a video game person or as a social justice person, which I guess is what I am now. Yeah, but you can definitely see like the beginnings of like a crafted style coming in that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think something that I worry about style wise is to what extent should you 
this is when you're talking about sort of weirdos on the internet, to what extent do you ridicule people and give people a place to just laugh at something that is quite obviously silly? And to what extent do you try and debunk the actual ideas that they're trying to communicate? I've, I've always been very dubious about the value of doing either of those things, so I try and I try and give a mix of them in, in my own way. Whereas when I'm talking about games, I get to sort of talk about things I enjoy and how I, how I think things work. So I think that's an infinitely more constructive thing to do, even if it's only talking about games. But for me, games and how they work are kind of an integral part of living in, on this planet now. So talking about them has a value of its own, even if it's not a particularly big one. Normally, I stick with like any game content a creator makes, which has been easy up till now, but you're like the first creator who has specifically a lot of non-game content as a big part of your production. And so I just, I can't just help but want to start diving into that a bit, because you start off in that first video just basically laughing at the utter ridiculousness and forced me to laugh along with it because it kind of highlights just, as you said, how silly it was. But as you go on with certain other ones, you start to actually, like, respond in certain ways, still keeping, like, the humor and the laughter, but it starts to shoot down through, I guess, through irony and sarcasm. But then in your some of your most recent ones, the measured response of Bill Nye versus Pseudoscience, you actually have, like, a constructive argument saying, no, this is where you actually state this is different than the Arenis and all the other ones because this is a person who's trying to create a response and just not doing it well as opposed to be doing it in bad faith. Yeah, that's something that I want to get better at is discerning if a person knows they're lying or if they think they're telling the truth because that difference is hard to detect quite often but I think it's an important one. Because if it's the latter, then surely if you can expose them to the truth, then that will help them. And also, you know, there is a community that sort of pride themselves on uh, on this supposed rationality. I try not to sarcastically call them the skeptic community anymore, because often I think they're not, and I don't want to create the idea that they actually are. But I, I like holding people at expectation by showing, well, if, if you do match this label, here is a list of things that is wrong with what you're saying and seeing how they react. That's certainly a new thing I'm trying. So uh, this is an experiment that could easily be a failure. You know, I could, you know, the people I talked about could easily get back to me and reveal that they don't actually care, uh, which is something a little worrying, but I think it's worth a try. I have a part two to that particular video where I cover more people and some, some sort of less good faith arguments and also sort of try and deal with the general idea of if, if this is a community why do they all make very similar mistakes and why do not many of them actually know much about science? I'm trying to get to the bottom of that. And I guess there's a kind of strong constitution you have in being able to go through all this. Personally, when I was listening to the one that you acted in good faith versus the ones that are obviously not in good faith, I couldn't tell really the difference because the hmm. presentation, the style, and the, the manner of argument sort of seemed very similar to those that we know and have just outright claim. I'm, I don't want to use their names on here. Outright claim they don't care. Yeah, absolutely. The the difference is, of course, there's a lot of overlap as well. You know, the the person who who I covered, uh, Armored Skeptic, is like quite close friends with people who I know for a fact don't care. You know, and there's 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 them. They've responded to videos I've made saying, you know, and I quote, money, money, money. You know, so it's like. To what extent are they all in it for that? I don't know. But I think the only, like, 
the only valuable way of... Well, I think about it in terms of... I have an audience now who will probably be entertained by what I do. But there's an audience of people who maybe are on the fence about these ideas. And to a certain extent, the, the stuff I make is, is for them too. You know, the, for people who might actually be able to change their minds. One of the people who worked with me doing research on this, this video and the next one used to be a big fan of these folks and changed their mind as a result of sort of getting more of a science education and discovering all of the mistakes in their work. I feel like if I can help to sort of create that feeling in other people, then I, I can do something that might be genuinely good. So to a certain extent, maybe they don't care, and maybe to a certain extent I don't think they do, but acting in good faith as if they did helps more people than them, even if they can't be saved, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to say is that a lot of, like, your and this sort of shifts into your video game criticism, is that a lot of it is couched in irony, in this over-the-top sense of exaggeration and hyperbole and, I guess, sardonic manner. But at the very end, especially at some of your longer videos, you could, okay, we've had a lot of fun, but now let's get down to truth. And you try and get dig at something deeper. I'm trying to remember which of it, because I remember specifically, I want to say it was your Fallout 3 video, where after you started, you made fun of a lot of things and a lot of, and a lot of the presentation and how it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. You sat down, but real talk. And then you go, uh, yeah, it was the Fallout 3, because then you have, you do that close-up image of the head blowing up. It was like the final boss who you talked down. Yeah. And yeah. how the game responded by saying, you talked him down. No, I blew his head up. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Oh, that was a good ending. I remember that now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, the real concern of Fallout 3. And it was like, okay, you can tell because your tone got down, like you slowed down the image, and everything says, okay, I'm being serious now. And I feel like a lot of how YouTube is and when it's couched in irony and it's couched in entertainment, they don't have that, let's get serious for a moment and talk about some deeper truth. Gosh. Um, well, that's, that's definitely a concern of mine. I, I use a lot of what I hope are sort of successful comedic techniques to try and get ideas across, but I think when you make long-form stuff, you want to try and wear away at that until you reach a place where you can be honest. I think a lot of, especially sort of with the Bloodborne one, you know, or, or with the Dark Souls 2 one, which has been pretty contentious, I like, I recognize that I'm starting from a place of everyone maybe disagreeing with me about that specific game. A lot of people really dislike that one. So starting from a place of humor and of sort of having this over, clearly over-the-top perspective helps to slowly invite people to agree with the quote-unquote actual one that's obviously happening underneath the one I'm putting forward. So then sort of by the midpoint and the end, I get to sort of say my perspective in a way that feels more grounded. Something that I sort of stole from Stuart Lee was this idea of the friction between real and comic personas and of sort of constantly playing with which one was talking uh, so as to confuse people, because I feel like that creates a certain sense of mystique that's more valuable than simply either saying your opinion or being jokey all the time. So I think a lot of my longer videos work with trying to do something fun with that. So the Fallout 3 one ends with me. It actually ends with me sort of screaming as it zooms in on, on that character coming back to life because that character can't be killed until their suicide a few seconds later. So th that sort of thing where... I like to try and round things off in a way where you can never quite tell which part was the joke and which one was real, so people can then pick and choose, and that means they get what they want from it, and I don't get to look like I was, I cared too much, you know? <laughs> and speaking of that personal style, who or what influenced that? God, I, I'm not even sure at this point. 
I had this feeling at some point when I was making stuff that this is derivative of something, really, obviously, but I don't remember what it is, and someone's going to point it out and tell me. So something I often do, I'm very sort of aware of plagiarism, is I Google my name and plagiarism to try and find who it is I'm stealing, because I want to know. Uh, so um, there's uh, two people I... I believe I've been accused of stealing from, actually, uh, specifically for the Fallout 3 video. Um, Seamus Young, who I heard about from looking for this, and oh, who else was it? Mr. B-Tongue, a YouTube critic who's quite good. Um, I've heard of Seamus Young. I haven't heard of Mr. B-Tongue. Well, I don't feel like the thing, I, I don't feel like I stole anything from them, especially because I hadn't heard of one of them when I was looking for this. But the the concept they were both talking about essentially boiled down to the sort of what do they eat question of, you know, is, is this game realistic enough? You know, do you understand this section of... 4.3 has a problem in that it's not very realistic because you don't really know what these people eat was was that point. And they both kind of made that point. So actually, I think one might have plagiarized the other there. But um, so I, I, I'm very aware of of that. And it's a shame that I don't have an answer because I wish I could be like, oh, here's, here's this one source that I'm inspired by. But I'm, it's more a sort of sort of miasma of red letter media's Plinkett type stuff, even though I kind of disagree with their approach and with a lot of their analysis and various comedians who I liked. And I definitely quite a lot of Charlie Brooker as well. I, I was figuring this feels very British and very influenced by real-world comedy as opposed to YouTube comedy. Yeah, yeah. The phrase very British resonates with me because I don't know where my accent comes from. I've been on the internet on Skype since I was quite young, since I was since I'd just become a teenager. And being British, being English, had this premium where people listen to you. So I sort of slowly, without really recognizing it, slowly made myself talk more like this. And I don't know why. I was born in Yorkshire. Like, this this isn't how we talk. Uh, and, and no one's ever really been able to give me a satisfying explanation, and no one who in my family know, talks like this at all. So being described as very British is something I take as this sort of, almost a thing of pride where I've achieved this level of generic Englishness that doesn't exist in the wild. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yes, the media over here has tried to do that with generic Americanism for over a century, so... Yeah, yeah. That, well, people people intentionally channel that as well. Um, uh, God, there's a, there's a film called The Founder that came out quite recently, and like a lot of that film is about what makes McDonald's so special in the end, and sort of the conclusion is McDonald's has this sort of American-sounding potential that's actually infinitely more valuable than any of the things that the store actually did. So I think that's an interesting idea, just people trading on this sort of generic idea of something. And that's something I like to talk about a lot, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm aware when I'm doing it, at least. I guess your first video game critique is your Lords of the Fallen review. Yeah, yeah. And this I only found out by steadily going through your entire backlog. Oh, yeah. And it's a strange thing in comparison to your much later work in that it's rather conventional. Yeah, I was going for a more sort of typical style. There was a point where there was this sort of other channel called The Dinner Dates, which people who I'd known from, who I'd done some stuff with when I went to, before I went off to university, and they started a sort of a new channel where they sort of did this sort of more generic video game stuff. And when the measured response started going well, I kind of wanted a place to, to, to do stuff. I wanted to get back into making videos after graduating. And that was the first thing of what was going to be several I made for that channel specifically. So that one ended up on my channel again because 
right after making that, I got a job uh, as an engineer and moved to you know a like a closet in London to work, and the channel fell apart. So by the time I was sort of in a place where I could make video stuff again, th- that video no longer had a home, so I put it back online. And then after that, kind of what I consider like the first H. Balmer guy video is Why is Braid Great? Oh, yeah. yeah and that it, it's, it starts to cultivate that style and strangeness. Yeah, yeah, gosh. That was only February 2016, jeez, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's the first one regarding games as well. Um, it even, I think, might be the first video with the opening sting, which is a friend of mine, uh, Max Woodhams, is a, is a musician who has contributed numerous bits of music to all of my weird projects over the last probably a little bit under a decade now. And he'd, I was at his house, and he was playing just like, he had just this playlist of weird, unfinished songs that he didn't think were very good, but sort of we had this fun time listening to. And the song that that one is, Disco.mp3, Disco with two S's, came on, and it was just, like, really silly, and I I wanted it, so I made him send it to me on Facebook that night, and I used it in videos. God, yeah, so that's definitely the beginning where I sort of was trying to figure out how do I give sort of valuable analysis of games and put forward the sort of ideas that I feel... I can get across uniquely while continuing to be entertaining and sort of how do I hold a person's attention long enough that I can subject them to my particular pretensions, basically. And out of it came comes a great quote, which you uh, center as your entire what you're trying to do. In my videos, I like to offer alternative perspectives on things and contribute to people's processes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sounds like something useful, I would say, if I was trying to. Occasionally I, I watch stuff and I hear something good that I said and I think, wow, that's actually really clever. I wish I was like that. You know, where I sort of occasionally accidentally say something valuable and then I'm envious briefly of whoever wrote that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's certainly what I'm trying to do is just like point out something that maybe not everyone has noticed. And then when more people have, then they get to add that to how they how they think about something. It's certainly something like you see a lot in film discussion where people haven't thought about a particular way that films work. And having that awareness alters can alter almost everything about how you look at it. And trying to contribute that and sort of get people to incorporate that into how they see things is something that I kind of enjoy doing because I feel like I've sort of infected them almost with my ideas. So I guess that's what I enjoy. And I guess the most extreme example of this is when you do the contrarian perspective, like Fallout 3 is garbage or... Yeah, absolutely. Like Fallout 2 is great. Yeah, like I, for me, like I've been trying to write about the things I hate about Fallout 3 for maybe a decade. In fact, a lot of, most of the criticism, like I, I, I kind of am engaging criticism of Fallout 3 and of, and responses to that video over the last year. And the fascinating thing is when it first came out, people were like, this is eight years too late. It's been out for a long time. How can you talk about it? Everyone loves it. What are you doing? And now a year later, the criticism is, why was this made? Everyone knows this game is bad now. And, you know, what, you know, it doesn't need to be said. And I, I'm very happy that we've now reached that point um, where it's hated for the opposite reasons. But the difficult thing about being me is I have a lot of opinions that a lot of them are wrong. So I have to try and get them across as convincingly as possible. So, you know, my dislike of Fallout 3 comes from a place of really enjoying the first two and of not enjoying the sort of lack of, of story and of direction that I feel like I was being given. 
so I thought, well, how do I get this across? So I opened with what I thought was a funny, here's a jokey breakdown of the problems and of making fun of game critics who at the time were seemed quite clearly biased in favor of it and quite often were advertising it on their site. And then seg into, okay, here's, here's like point by point. Here's some things I think are microcosmic of the problem. And then I think the, the part that, where the video came together was when I realized that I could quite easily demonstrate the emotional differences between the games. Uh, so I just showed the endings of one and three next to each other, basically. That sort of thing. So I think I might have actually sort of deprogrammed a few people's opinions on Fallout 3, and that's a kind of interesting thing to have done, I guess. And then they don't realize where they deprogrammed it, so when they find the video again, they wonder why this was made at all, if everyone already knows this. Yeah, yeah, you do wonder, like, with a lot of these things, you contribute to the space of ideas in ways that you don't see. So, like, who knows how ideas disseminate into each other? Like, there's there's plenty of other videos critical of Fallout 3, and there were definitely more before mine. Like, I, I don't actually think it's a particularly radical thing to think the game is bad, because the game is bad. So... There we go. But it's interesting thinking, to what extent have I accidentally planted some seeds that have led down to some people who now think things that I kind of wanted them to think, but when they come back around and see the video for the first time, are like, what is this? Everyone knows this. I think that's a really... It's interesting seeing ideas develop like that, I guess. There's a thing I, I actually recently did. I did a video about plagiarism on YouTube, and there's a, a fellow who... I feel plagiarized my work. I could be wrong, but uh, I sort of made fun of him a bit and sort of pointed out some, some similarities. And he briefly, although he took it down, put out a response where uh, he sort of, I don't know, sort of oscillates between saying there's, there's no plagiarism, it's all fake, and then sort of makes weird accusations about me, starts recommending that I go on estrogen blockers and other weird stuff that I feel it isn't helpful to suggest when you're trying to defend your work from criticism, but there we go. Maybe that's why he took it down. But uh, the one of the interesting points he made was that he came up with his idea for his video from discussing the game on Reddit. And that, for me, is sort of the red flag of, well, but what discussion, you know, did that happen because of my video? Did I inadvertently inspire someone to make the, the very thing that gave people the idea and sort of ended up on Reddit? Or, like, how how did these ideas... Uh, trickle into each other is something that I wish I had the time and ability to fully track because this is, you know, learning how ideas develop is maybe the most important thing in the world. Like, you could be, you could do something really interesting with that. Yeah, if there was a meta point to your disparate works, is that you're a rhetorician more than anything <laughs> else. It's like that, that's very clearly your interest in how something presents its idea, how something wants to get its point across. Oh, absolutely, yeah. My current thing that I'm doing as a pet project that I haven't really done anything with yet is looking at quite a lot of um, videos now from sort of certain corners of the internet figure as essentially like propaganda pieces where they're aesthetically built to feel like like they're made for you know for for the people who are fighting in the resistance you know who are secretly in the trenches there's one that's just where sort of before they put their channel up properly there was just this like 6 minute rant that they'd added like a VHS filter over their voice it sounded crackly and it was just a waveform moving and it was all dramatic and it's like this is this is how they see themselves that's the most interesting part is this is just a free associative rant about feminism taking over the world, even though the right is in power in almost every Western country. 
but you know they, they genuinely believe this, so they have and to prove it, they have to dress it up in this aesthetic stuff. And exploring that is, I think, important because that's people maybe place more value in aesthetic than they do on the message at this point, which is a shame. And I want to go back to the th- videos that we were discussing because I think some of the best points you made in the Fallout 2 and the Dark Souls 2 video, Fallout 3 in the Dark Souls 2 video, is when you used like the playstyles of other people as proof of like how the game informs you to play. I believe in, in the Dark Souls one you used Patrick Klepek. Yeah, that's right, Patrick Klepek. As and and how he just seemed. Ap- oh no, actually, this might have been the Bloodborne video where he was just absolutely miserable through the Dark Souls one and just sighed in relief and you noticed how he was playing and then you show like the differences when you take away the shield and you know, oh my god, he's actually happy now. Yeah. And also in Dark Souls 2, you actually show like, well, the reason you can't see them is because you're using the lock on Mm. and it's pulling the camera away and you actually like use like play style evidence as opposed to the technical nitty gritty of mechanics. Absolutely, yeah. The the difficulty when you talk about the Souls games is no matter what you say about the Souls game, there'll be someone in the in the comments telling you you're playing it wrong. And that's definitely I think a problem with the community as uh, at large and also with the mentality of those games imbue. But at the same time, it is possible to play a game wrong. And when that happens, to what extent is the player responsible for their experience, too? And I think the extent is probably about half and half. So was it Patrick making a mistake playing Demon's Souls the way he did? Perhaps. But what if the game, on some level, has a responsibility to make you want to play it in the way that it becomes fun when you actually get into it? And I think it's a... People who stick with the early games can reach a point where they get good at them, where they become talented at playing it in a way that is enjoyable. Uh, there, there were always people who, who had the fun that people got from Bloodborne, uh, but developing a game that actually sort of funneled people towards that as quickly as possible uh, is incredibly smart, I think, in terms, of, in terms of design. And you make a similar point in Fallout 3, though you don't have any Let's Play evidence. It's when the reviewers, the old-style reviewers from, when did that come out? 2008, yeah. were talking about it, and they said, like, they didn't notice the robot. And it was right there filling up the screen, and then you're looking at it wondering, why didn't they notice? And it's because you point out, because they're looking at the minimap. Yeah, they that's, can't see the rest of the screen. Yeah, the the Fallout 3's big issue for me in terms of design is it's very, despite being not a Final Fantasy style RPG where the gameplay and the story are segregated, you there is very much that in terms of the game. There's the sections where you're sort of doing your own thing, where you're using vats, where you're hanging out and sort of having dialogue with people, and then there are the segments where you're doing, you know, quotes and quote, doing the story, and then you're looking at the map objective marker to see where you're supposed to be going and those differences are so strict that in so many story areas there are little elements no one notices like uh, the forks under the grating are the one i always point to or the giant robot which is probably also worth pointing towards but it took deduction on your part to figure out why but at the same point it's a similar point of how the game is teaching you how to play and it's ultimately teaching you wrong yeah, it's a consequence of opening in a in a place that's maze-like and giving you a, a map, giving you a thing on the bottom saying, here's where you need to go because this place is confusingly built. 
a like vastly superior opening can be found in Fallout New Vegas, where the opening area is well, firstly a small house where everything is in view, and secondly a small town where everything is quite easily delineable. And so you could walk in a straight line towards the stuff that's there, or you can explore this sort of open place that clearly has buildings with stuff you might want to see. So what is your process in making a video? Usually uh, I rant endlessly for hours at people who I know on Skype or in real life, and then eventually I hit on something that sticks in my head, and I think, oh, that's an idea, and then I write it down, and then between a month and eight years later, uh, I come back to it and go, oh, I could. here's, here's how the, all of these ideas I've had stick together, and then I make a, make a piece out of it. So a lot of things... So I, I did a thing about how action scenes work, and that was the sort of a component or a composite of sort of three ideas about how how editing has happened to get an idea across in three different films and trying to piece that into sort of a more interesting overall point about how the thing works, uh, as it were. Another, I, I made a video about Undertale, which I think is one of the ones that's recommended on Critical Distance, where I just played it and thought, well, you know, what is this game trying to get across, you know, and... I arrived while I was playing it at, well, it's clearly about how people interact with things that they're fans of, and knowing that the creator came from, you know, got sort of really big from making stuff related to, uh, what is it, the Homestuck community, uh, which is very much a very obsessive fandom, that clearly sort of found its way into the work. And seeing people not talk about that made me want to, basically. Usually sort of my key inspiration is... One aspect of this thing isn't being spoken about, but is worth it. And then after you came up with the idea and write the script, mm. do you have, like, I guess, like, like a storyboard? Because you, you switch back into so many different scenes and angles between, like, video footage and game footage. And Yeah, I what I tend to do is I have... I try and do things in stages so that each individual thing becomes its own source of inspiration. So I have notepads where I will write the idea down physically. So I have like a notepad where I first came up with play conditioning or I first came up with the fandom elements of Undertale where I just, I had that thought and I wrote it down. Then I have a stage where I'm actually trying to write a script out. So I'll go and write out. So for example, the next video I'm working on is about Lisa. So I've written out, let me just quickly check, tools, word count. I've written... 4,600 words about Lisa, but I haven't played through the game yet to record the footage. Uh, and this is, I always do this on purpose. I did the same thing with Undertale. I had the idea, I wrote a, you know, thousands of words, and then, and then went to actually record the footage and see if the things that I thought were there were there. Because then you get to sort of re-experience the process of writing by re-exploring the idea in the actual content. And that means you get to refine the idea again. I almost purposefully know that I'm wrong the first way through, so I get to look to see what mistakes I made and fix them. So that way, I almost have sort of two passes of writing. Instead of just like writing, a, you know, playing the whole game, recording it, and then writing, you know, two drafts of a script, you have this sort of experience dividing the two, and I think that's really helpful. So then, when I have that, I go back and actually sort of go back through and finish the script, as I'm going to do with, with Lisa when I'm done recording footage for it. And then the process of editing begins, which I've left completely until the end. So then after sort of recording voiceover, which is usually just a straight run of the script, and then I can just go through the footage I have of the game and figure out, as I go, what fits where. I think if I planned everything in advance, it wouldn't be as things wouldn't fit as well. Uh, because I wouldn't be able to sort of naturally arrive at the conclusion at the proper point for it. So I like that a lot of things 
about videos happen in the editing stage right at the end, as opposed to me sort of masterfully coming up with some kind of storyboard after already recording everything footage-wise or anything like that. I think the the only time I ever sort of had a thing all had all the gameplay recorded and then started writing was I think maybe for for for, for Braid where I I needed to play all of Braid again to be sure that what I was talking about was even there and then playing it again gave me those ideas again to then write about write about what oh sorry <laughs> uh, so I I, I I finished that thought. Uh, so, the sort of for me, the thing about Braid that's interesting is it's a puzzle game that demands finishing because it exists and it's a puzzle game and there's things that you can easily collect, but it's very deliberately unhelpful in what those things are. So, one of the seven or six secret things in the game, these stars, one of them you can't get. Uh, if you've already collected a lot of the stuff in the game because it, it locks you out of some things. One of them t- just takes hours to get. You just have to sit and wait. Um, so you've already oh, no, re- I, went, I went to class. I managed to jump up on that thing, and I went to class waiting for it to cross. I watched, like, four episodes of House waiting for it to cross. Uh, the And then it was only after I got the star did I realize you could speed it up to take only five minutes. I didn't realize you could speed it up. Uh, I didn't. I actually still didn't think you could do that. If you use the keyboard, well, at least on the keyboard, what I because I kept using the right shift because it was right next to the arrow keys, but if you use the left shift, you can then use the arrow keys to speed up how fast it fast-forwards or how fast it rewinds up to 16 times. I didn't realize you could fast-forward. I thought you could only fast-forward through stuff you already rewound, if that made sense. Jeez, no. no. I, I, wow. I, I learned this after I got the star, so... I. I, I hope they somehow patched that in after I made that video because now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> I have hours of footage of just that, the thing scrolling and audio from house as I watch it on another monitor. But I'm pretty sure next to nobody knows this happens because, like, I didn't know you could speed it up at all because I kept using the wrong shift on the keyboard. God, that's... There's a different <laughs> shift? Of course. So, there we go. Well, that actually blows part of my argument wide open, you know, the, but all of the other stars are deliberately annoying to get, like, they're off-screen in ways that are just thoroughly inconvenient to even think about getting to, and that sort of creates this, this sort of, this feeling of, why are you doing this? You're obviously either following a guide or exploring every inch of this thing, and are you enjoying this? Are you actually having fun, uh, player? And... The sort of and the ending it yields is sort of a sadder ending. You learn more about the depths of the obsession of this main character, and for me, that it sort of clicked there. And it's this is a puzzle game that wants you to think about what the hell you're doing with your life, and that's that fascinated me. Uh, I think uh, so. I, I think a lot of uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, sort of uh, synopses of a film is of the um, is of the Sixth Sense where it's a story about a man attempts to solve a mystery and discovers that he doesn't exist. Like, the process of trying to find the answer is itself a mistake sometimes, more than the question itself, and that's something I wanted to to delve into. And it comes up again in The Witness, you know, there are so many puzzles which which you can't fast-forward through, so so I I guess I was right all along, uh, where, like, there's one where you, you put on this really long thing about, I think it's about game design, actually, I sort of tuned it out, where an ob- like one object just moves across the space and you have to draw a line partway through it and then wait and then connect it, you know, to get the one of the final secret things. 
and it's I'm being so vague because the, the game makes you talk like that because uh, that's just how it is and like that's annoying and there's no value in doing it that you already earned the cool video presentation about game design but here you are and what's wrong with you and I think that's an incredibly interesting thing to do in a game about solving puzzles if it makes you feel any better about the braid thing does it really matter if you can do it that it's possible to do it if nobody knows you can part of me is now thinking maybe sort of to as a way of covering my ass what if he put that in on one particular shift key just to just to sting you one last time once you've waited for two hours? Well, you're all supposed to use a controller, so yeah, yeah. It's it's also partially my fault. But back to the original question of like how you plan things. I was thinking of the Sonic lore video because of how much work kinda had to go into the <laughs> real world sections of that. Oh yeah, wow, yeah. Well, that was just I don't know how that idea crystallized. It sort of started with I want to start doing a series, and I've so far done like two. So it's not been very successful. I'm kind of doing more, but I don't want to spoil what they're going to be like, where I dress up in sort of obscene facsimiles of the characters that are uncanny and horrible and sort of the product of of a clearly sort of out-there imagination of this sort of character I'm slowly building for myself and interact the things about the story that I think are interesting or sort of subtly in the background and sort of bring those out in it. So sort of my analysis of Sonic has sort of resulted in this vision of Sonic as this sort of radical eco-terrorist fighting in a doomed world. So I thought, well, let's build this this obscene costume and have this person try and, you know, try and emote this stuff out there. So that's uh so I kind of wrote the whole thing in advance again, uh but this time got this sort of list of, okay, here are shots that might fit with this. And then I just sort of filmed myself in my garage for hours, like two hours in that costume, doing everything I thought might be relevant. And then uh, then went and recorded the games and tried to tried to piece it all together. So that one is definitely, there's definitely a lot more work going into it than like, if I'd planned that out rigorously, that video would not have taken as long as it did to make. But now I have tons of footage that... I don't know what to do with, which I'm in t- I intend to at some point just put out, like, I'll pro- I'm going to try and do it this month, put out for patrons so they can just do what they want with it. So I just have, like, an hour and a half of ProRes footage of me just messing about, doing various, attempting to recreate various Sonic animations on a green screen and just see what people do with them. Uh, the only reason I haven't put out is that I, there's clips that I recorded for what I had in mind for, like, Sonic 2 that I didn't want to have to put the costume back on to shoot, but I might have to now, so... um. I want to I want to keep those in case I use them. The, the the thing that I left on the cutting room floor because it's for Sonic Two is like the idea of uh, like Tails is pretty much objectively like this child soldier, right? So obviously I need to find someone to play Tails in a similarly bad costume and have him you know be sort of depicted as this sort of very young person who's been indoctrinated into basically this Sonic oriented cult. <laughs> I guess that leads directly into this question that I've wanted to know for a while. What type of effort goes into this messy spectacle of your production values? More than it looks, because that's the that's the nature of the thing. So, God, it's it's like I had to buy a green screen and and proper lights and and a camera that could like detect the screen properly so that it, it would key. Like I. More effort than I care to admit went into like the the things on my channel that are just super 
weird and out there. Uh, I had to, for the one where I dressed up as Mario, I had to buy a woman's Mario costume, because I thought it would be funnier, uh, on eBay. I had to buy a cake, uh, like, to destroy. Uh, to make the sound effect, I bought, like, just this horrible canned macaroni and just fiddled with it with my hands for a bit. I try as hard as I can to occupy the space where the thing is obviously well put together and produced well. So, like, you're getting the sense of this scene that is happening. But you can also constantly see the edges of the thing. Like, there's a section I leave in where I'm running as Mario and I, like, trip and then just get up and walk off. And, like, I think it's really funny to leave that in. But hopefully I've left in in enough, like, actual non-joke stuff that also the idea of what I'm doing here gets across. And that line is incredibly hard to, to walk. And I think I would have a much easier time if I either tried to make the point very seriously or if I just put all jokes in there. But sort of trying to get the synthesis is requires more effort than either combined. And I've made a huge mistake with my career. <laughs> uh, but, but I really enjoy what it is that I end up getting to say. So hopefully one day there'll be videos about sort of... I kind of want to cover almost all the Sonic games at some point and sort of this... I want to sort of get the chance to get across my genuine and maybe a little too far opinions about what Sonic is sort of about thematically, but get it across in a way where it's so obscured by just stuff that people can get what they want out of it. Uh, I guess a lot of my work is motivated by this fear that my opinions are too far out there if they're provided sort of without being watered down by jokes. Zoya, the editor-in-chief and my boss at Critical Distance, it was like the main thing he brought up when I pointed out that you were on the list of people I was going to ask, <laughs> is because it's purposefully supposed to look like it's so sloppily made, but it's so obviously not. Yeah. Like, especially in, like, one of your non-video game reviews where you're just pointing out some film the alt-right people are making and just how sloppily it actually is made and how obvious it is, even though they're trying to go for the high production value. Yeah, yeah, like, it's very clear what the money went into. It's very clear that, like, the the, the most fascinating shot in that entire quote-unquote film is there's an interview going on where whoever was filming it had decided to film the interviewer in the shot as well, and then they had to reframe it in post when someone told them, no, you get just their reaction. You just put that in. So they had to reframe it. But he, the guy's sitting cross-legged and his foot is just in the corner of the frame. And then it's even worse in because the two sort of split uh, apart, but both made their own version of the documentary. One of them is even worse because they had to cut all of their f- former friend out. So it's even more shoddily reframed. And it's like, I love, in a way, there's something I really enjoy about that because you're not just getting the the piece that they wanted to give you in all of its glory, you're getting the story about how it got there and how it reached that point. You know, you can almost see the arguments that led to him having to cut his friend out of the film. And I love that. But in just comparison to your work, it's like you throw, what was it, a mayonnaise-covered piece of toast at a computer screen for some reason? Yeah, yeah. I don't even remember the context, and this is like, it seems like a metaphor. It's so sloppy, it's so, like, oozing, and it's just, this is not meant to work well, and yet it's crisp, it's clear, it's center-framed. I'm so shocked whenever I manage to get anything in focus, but I'm very glad I got the shot of the toast hitting the screen in, in focus the way I did. I've sort of, something that 
you, you're taught very early on in sort of the indie film community is shoot with as low an f-stop as possible. You know, f1.8, uh, 1.4 if you can afford a lens that does it. Shallow depth of field, it's the future, it's, it's in music videos. Uh, and then you discover that when you film yourself, uh, you're not in focus. It's horrible. So then you sort of go through this process of unlearning everything and trying to, you know, putting the f f stop back up or back down. I forget which direction you're supposed to say uh, to like four or five point six or eight, so that you know you can you're actually visible. So the last video I made, the one about the, the about Bill Nye, is shot on a worse camera than I normally use, just as an experiment. But I shot it, and I'm I actually attempted to put myself in focus and it looks so much better than the stuff I normally film on the supposedly higher end equipment because it's like I can actually be in focus I don't know I felt I had this sort of out of body experience watching it and thinking oh my god I've like my entire like 10 months of trying to learn this craft is a bit of a mistake <laughs> but once you learn those lessons it's, you get to then apply them to everyone else and make fun of them for it, and that's great. Like, I, I just did that plagiarism video where I made fun of how overproduced someone's audio is, but my audio is, like, awful. So, I don't know. It's, uh, so I, I, I know about awful audio yeah, yeah, we, and having to fix it. Yeah, the last, the first, like, 30 minutes of our talk was, was you telling me about the, the trials and tribulations of that. Like, <laughs> but that's... I think part of the fun of this for me is that I'm always learning something new. I'm always discovering new ways in which I personally am stupid. It wouldn't be fun for me if I was intelligent, you know, and was always right about stuff. Uh, it's far more interesting to me that I'm always learning some some new thing. Although, at the same time, I get to pass off the mistakes as part of the lo-fi aesthetic. So, in some respect, maybe it helps that I'm not always well-made yet. What training, if any, do you have in video production? Uh, very little. No, um, uh, no. I went to I went to university to study uh, English literature, and then uh, when one morning I woke up. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you too. Yeah. yeah. Decorated uh, uh, English literature survivor. One morning I woke up still drunk, not hungover, still drunk, and changed my course to include enough film credits that I could borrow the cameras. And I thought, I'm going to make a film. I'm going to make a piece of art. It's going to be beautiful and spent three years of my of my sort of spare time making a film that will hopefully never see the light of day. I hope no one else has access to the footage. It's despicable. Uh, but it taught me more of the basics of editing and of, and of shots and of angles. And I just watched a lot of films and sort of reached the point where I had an idea for the sort of things I wanted to get across in the way I thought it would be funny to do it and knew how to. And that was that was kind of fun. It sort of... I don't have much formal training. I, I've, I did enough stuff at university that I know how to I know how to behave on a set, funnily enough. I've been on a few sort of semi-professional shoots, but I wouldn't say I have any real major education in it. I think it's mostly self-taught, because the things that I probably should have been paying attention to years ago in university, I probably missed. So it feels self-taught, even though it probably shouldn't be. Um, I feel that... A that's a theme with my life, too. It's like I, I ostensibly graduated from college with a degree in, in uh, English. The thing is, is that I'm pretty sure everything I know about criticism and theory and art movements came out after I graduated. Yeah, you, you go to college to learn how little you know, and then you spend the rest of your life making up for it all. I'd, some, I, I saw a sticker on someone's desk once. It was like, employ a teenager now while they still know it all. And 
to a certain extent, I wish I, I not just wish I've considered like going back to university and studying some other new subject and maybe actually learning it. But I know it would happen again. I just learn how much more complicated it is. And that's that's life in any field, really. You you come away, you you learn to worry if you don't know enough. You know, I've everyone I've all the sort of really pretentious people in my life who I've slowly learned to cut out very politely are people who are always telling you what it is that they're reading and how clever they're being. Whereas the folks who I've come to have more of a respect for are the people who have kind of developed this uh, mild anxiety about never having read enough of anything. Because the people who do that actually are the ones who are who are really sort of trying to ingest more information because they feel like they're supposed to. But that means living a life of constant anxiety. So there we go. So this question was a lot more relevant earlier in this series of interviews mm-hmm. with video critics. But at this point, it almost seems like a moot point, especially with how our discussion, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you feel that video adds to the criticism Gosh, wow, yeah, that seems like such an obvious thing. I don't even know how I would say that. Like, it's video. <laughs> um, it's, uh, well, the beauty and loss of the text form is people can read it however they want. People can read it in any order, at any speed. They can come back to it. And they kind of have free reign to interpret and read your work however they want, and they can gloss over and miss some valuable bits. Like, uh, I'm a big fan of the writing of Tim Rogers uh, of ActionBurden.net, and a lot of people I've shown his essays, and they don't even really get the jokes because they kind of have learned to gloss over them after the first few thousand words. And that's a, you know, there's a fantastic line right in the middle of uh, his Bioshock Infinite review that's just, and then you kill cops for ten hours... And it's just this beautiful punchline, but no one like gets there and laughs because they've not primed themselves to read that far into something and perceive jokes anymore. You know, they've kind of lost the plot. And rather than sort of try and teach everyone how to read again, which would be sort of incredibly arrogant of me anyway, I've embraced the idea that when it's a video, you know, there's a play button and that's it. You know, they, they if, if they're watching and you're doing a job, they'll see the thing you want them to see. So I think that's basically the power of video is that you have infinitely more control over what the person actually is paying attention to uh, and that sort of... So, so I guess video is good because it makes me feel powerful is basically it. I'm afraid people wouldn't just read my words. So I use video to kind of like hold their attention, uh, I guess. Like, Sherlock is garbage and here's why. The thing I just made is like an hour, 50 minutes. Someone who could have just asked me to just send them my script has done a, I'm I'm looking for it right now in the comment section, has written out everything I wrote in a big Google doc. And I'm just going to quickly, it's too hard to find, I'm just going to open my version of the script that I have. Here's a quick word count on the thing I wrote about the Sherlock video. Uh, I might have cut some things out or added some things in later. 19,000 words. Who's going to read that? Who's going to read that and get every point, get every joke, all of that? Terrible. But you make a, a two-hour video, and, you know, five-minute videos, yeah, people will see it and get everything. And then there's sort of a length in between where people will think, ah, oh, you know, do I have the time for this, whatever. But, like, two hours, and what is this? I've got to see this. And that holds people. And that, you know, lets me trick people into hearing my, you know, over-the-top dislike of this thing. Uh, far more than if it was, you know, a 19,000-word essay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the power of video is that. 
is the precise way it controls how a person can approach the content, basically. I think also what I like is that you just don't pigeonhole yourself. Just, well, because, yes, you do the response to uh, not good thinkers <laughs> and video games, but then you have, like, oh, here's one on a television show, here's one on a comic, here's one on Stan Lee subtly making fun of Rob Lyons. Oh, yeah, I have bad opinions for every medium, so why not inflict as many of them as possible on people before they see through me? Um, I even did one on the election in my country this year. Like, it's... I don't know, I think I'm approaching the point where I have to accept that I have some kind of unified theory of how criticism works and how to look at the world. So to, when I'm talking about games, I'm invariably talking about everything else. So now I can compartmentalize them a little bit, you know. You haven't reached the fourth stage of the head enlightenment. Yeah, I don't have the, I don't have the unified theory yet uh, of how everything is about video games, but... For now, video games are about everything else, at least. You've made mention a few times in your videos that you're making a video game, or was that a joke that I just didn't get? No, 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 that was actually honest. I am, in fact, working on a, on a game. There was actually something... I've had numerous ideas for things that, that I've never really gotten off the ground, but I am now actually just making one particular game that I've spent a lot of time writing and trying to put ideas in and thinking about how I'll get them across in the mechanics, and then had a much harder time actually making those mechanics. I can't really do programming or art or... Uh, music, but I started with the intent of doing all of that myself and I'm slowly having to accept that I actually should bring people in who know what they're doing in that respect and then just try and continue with the bits that I am good at. But yeah, I am actually working on a game. Something that I'd our good friend uh, McBacon1337 Mark Brown's Game Maker's Toolkit, his first video he sort of postulates as a sort of example that he doesn't know, he's just throwing out there is, what if there was a fight where every enemy was a instrument in the soundtrack and as you killed them it sort of took that piece out until you're left with silence and I thought that's that's such a fantastic idea, you know, you're sort of ridding the world of its character through violence, like, that's such a great idea so that's, some, that's an idea that I've stolen basically, but how do you put that together and that's the fun bit, it's, it's learning a new skill and also learning to like an even deeper level of respect for the people who make the stuff that I talk about because it is so much harder. Yeah, I took a class on programming to just learn how to do basic things and uh, it did not go well. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I actually did computing in, well, I took it for A-level, which is, I think, similar to whatever it is that you Americans do. I don't know how your education system works. Neither do yeah. we. <laughs> I, I did really, really badly in it. I made a game that generates very simple maths, maths problems, numeracy problems for children to solve, and then it judges you based on how well you did. And even that was just a nightmare. You know, getting a a computer to generate a question and the answer successfully, and get it like, to get it, getting it to recognize when I was using a a bracket for the purposes of putting a bracket on the screen, and when I was using a bracket for the purposes of getting it to think something was you know it took months of my life to make this horrible program that i got a d for you sound a lot more successful than than i was <laughs> well i, I finished I, it it, it, so. took, it took me two days to do hello world so hello world is really hard to do in some programs over others though i was using i think it was it might even be c sharp which is what unity oh wow that's old is that oh, right oh no unity is c sharp no 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 or, I don't know, I'm thinking C+, plus. never mind. Um, C-sharp is, I think, what Unity is in, which is what I'm trying to use for this game, and I appear to have forgotten even more than I learned. I think I know less about programming than I did when I studied it. So 
I, a bunch of programmers have reached out to me on Twitter that I need to get back to once I've sort of figured out how I'm going to go about it. I'm very bad at, I don't want to have like a Zyborn clock scenario where someone comes up with this idea and they build a team and then you become the sort of laughing stock for all time, this meme about this game that was bad and never got finished. So, like, that, I'm not sure if you know about that. That's a something awful thing, but... Well, it- I don't know if it was like the original, but that's happened several times on Kickstarter that's asked for money and then the games disappeared as up their own asses as they tried to make Yeah, it. yeah, the, there was this sort of old, on something awful forums years ago where someone had this idea for a game and then everyone they got on board to contribute to it had their own weird ideas and they weren't all that great. And a lot of sort of weird memes have come out of that, like a Johnny Five Aces, who is just this incredibly silly character, who has actually appeared in some games now as a reference, and the sort of long thing someone wrote, imagine four balls on the edge of a cliff, which are actually, there are four balls on the edge of a cliff in Fallout New Vegas, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, just like, so many weird things, and actually I knew someone who was going to be a level designer on that game before it completely fell apart, and I don't want to make one of those, but I do need to figure out how to marshal people together and help them make this thing that I kind of have started to care a lot about making properly, so uh, maybe I should get around to that. But uh, it's hard, and also I want to pay people, which means having money, so that's hard. <laughs> Is there anything else about your YouTube career that you can think of that I haven't asked about yet? Oh, I was wondering if you were going to ask me sort of what I thought about the state of modern game criticism, just because it's become pertinent again in light of recent videos. Yes, I know. Yeah. But um, like I've I've been very vocally a semi sarcastically a critic of Kevin Van Ord, who I actually kind of respect, and I I hope that that actually comes across in my work that it's a semi jokey thing, but I do think a lot of sort of early modern game criticism is very unfocused at what it does and has a lot of problems built into sort of the socio economic conditions from which it was made to get a bit sanctimonious about capitalism for a second. And I think the particular video we're talking about, the donkey video about game critics, brings up a lot of valuable things to say, but in a way that sort of is itself stuck in the format of those videos where they're trying to sort of entertain an audience and get across a vast array of ideas in such a short span of time that it ends up being pretty reductionist itself. Uh, but the essentially, you're, you're dealing with these outlets that had to bring a lot of people together to talk about all the games that they needed to cover for themselves to be a functioning outlet. And what you end up with is, when you stop to think about it, a very sort of distorted, critical outlook with so many different people, with so many different beats. It ends up being not as useful as, as you know, as it's intended to be, and that's a shame, I suppose. I remember being really enamored with one particular, whose name I've forgotten, critic who wrote for a Nintendo magazine I was really into as a kid, and I would read his reviews specifically just because I thought he was really funny, and the captions he wrote on screenshots were really funny. And it's odd to me that there are people who are angry that specific outlets don't have a cohesive view because they have to, by their nature, have so many people on. And I feel like almost a solution to that is to learn to develop uh, and sort of attraction towards specific forms of writing from certain critics and sort of learn not to worry too much about whether the outlet's quality is good or not, but uh, that's that's just me. So, the final fluff question. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, no. Oh, no, not that one. Uh, Splinter Cell Chaos Theory. Do I have to uh, qualify that? 
it might help. Basically, the first two Splinter Cell games are these quite bad stealth games with these quite bad Tom Clancy-inspired plots. You know, it turns out to be Paul's name out of hat, North Korea. But the fun thing about Chaos Theory is it's all the mechanics uh, have crystallized into this genuinely very entertaining form the quick and load save buttons work really well like it just loads like like instantly so you can just experiment with all these different ways of getting through a setting and messing around with guards and tricking them into kicking doors open onto their friends like this is just this excellent playground of weird bad ai and the story is this fascinating like self parody where every single level is a new uh, and like it turns out a new generic tom clancy villain is behind it well like it begins with sort of generic terrorists, and then you have, oh, it's an inside job from the Americans, and then, oh, it's the Russians, and then it's North Korea, and then finally it's Japan, I think. Or it might be actually North Korea, and then it was Japan earlier. Yeah, Japan's earlier. Like, it's so many different things pile on top of each other to create this sort of excellent, sort of Deus Ex type every conspiracy is happening at once world and it was it was mind-blowing to me that people took it seriously at the time as like a genuinely serious stealth game when yeah the mechanics were very like realistic for the time but the story was this was just this nightmare and it was i loved it so much and it stuck with me more than any other game and also if you drop a guard's body in an elevator on the gamecube version and make the elevator go the body vibrates violently and then you get a call telling you to stop killing guards I'm going to remember that more than the faces of my children. So, uh, yeah, Chaos Theory, best game ever made. Tell the people where they can find you and your work and support you. Okay, you can find me on uh, twitter.com slash hbomberguy, uh, same with YouTube, and I'm on Patreon as uh, hbomb. Let me check. Yeah, it's just HBOM. Unfortunately, HBOM, that username is taken on almost every site. In fact, I think the HBOM on YouTube is a Minecraft Let's Player who is twice as popular as me and two years younger, and it's a constant source of disappointment to me. He exists and is so much more popular than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as for us on Critical Distance, if you like this podcast, please follow us and rate us on iTunes. The more ratings we get, the better helps us with the algorithm to get out to more people. And if you like all the work we do on Critical Distance, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. We thank all our Patreons for their support, but we want to especially thank Ash Candy, Asmund A., Brendan V., David K., Joe O., Nathan G., Ted D., Thane A., And please get in contact if I mispronounced your name in any way so I can correct it for next time. Well, thank you, Harry, for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It was really nice that you reached out to me. Cheers. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks.